This episode is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors to give you the service you deserve from your bank. Learn about their $1,000 giveaway at panaceafinancial.com slash curb. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, here with my co-host, Dr. Leah Witt, and you'll hear from our dear friend, Dr. Matt Watto, in a little bit. And the reason why you'll hear Matt in a little bit is because this episode was originally recorded about a year ago, pre-pandemic. Hard to even imagine what that time was like. Yeah. Um, And I'm really surprised that when I listen back to the audio, so much of this episode is still very relevant today, mid-pandemic. We're going to give some present-day context to the episode and then share with you some of our big takeaways with our guests. Yeah, so some present day context. Uh, Leah and I have both been through probably a tsunami of changes and uh, many, many cortisol surges uh, in the last year or so. Uh, Both of us uh, were pregnant about the same time and uh, I moved and started a new job in a completely new system. So nothing in both of our lives has felt like in cruise control for a very, very Mm -hmm. long time. Yeah, and just to reflect on our Women in Medicine Curbsiders series to date, now that I have a baby, actually a toddler, uh, even though I'm trying to put into practice work-life integration skills from episode one, I just can't stop thinking about the statistic that 40% of women leave or go part-time from medicine within six years of completing residency training. Yeah, you know, Leah, that that statistic is me. Uh, And I I know this is not the advice that women uh, should get. And I I don't give this advice to other women, too. I think everyone should get paid for their time and work. But I think if I'm being very honest uh, with the number of hats I'm wearing and and kind of the number of balls in the in the air, I I just for my mental peace, uh, I had to go part time. Mm -hmm. And it's really not just women that are looking for flexibility. Matt mentions this later in the episode. Maybe it's even a generational or cultural shift. And in these pandemic times, people are really reevaluating what do they want their lives to look like. I just heard the term being used for this um, high turnover time where people are looking for new jobs and leaving jobs called the great resignation. That's such a great name. Um, I I love it, and I think I think I, I just want to applaud not the the leaving of jobs or anything like that, but just the brave move. I think people were already at their wits end, probably pre pandemic, and then it was just an impetus to kind of have that courage to to say, hey, you know, this probably aligns with my work life a bit more, and whatever that means to to each individual. So mm-hmm. this episode is really going to delve into burnout and gender based uh, differences in well being, and how do we kind of achieve a more equitable workplace. Yeah, our first two guests on this episode participated in the 2019-2020 WELL program. So six different specialty organizations came together to think about the core tenets of equity, well-being, and leadership, and how you 
really can't have one without the other. WELL stands for Wellness Through Equity and Leadership. So first, Dr. Cliff Knight. He's a family physician and senior vice president for education at the American Academy of Family Physicians with extensive leadership and expertise in well-being. And then Dr. Tammy Lynn is an internal medicine specialist and voluntary assistant clinical professor at UC San Diego Health Sciences. Um, she actually started a podcast called The Day Shift, which is the D, it's spelled D-E-I, so diversity, equity, and inclusion within the medical field. And our third guest is the awesome equity warrior, Dr. Kim Templeton. She's a professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Kansas Medical Center, and her research focuses on women physicians and the inclusion of sex and gender-based medicine in medical education. All right, let's get into it. So Kim, you, you mentioned that um, a lot of the burnout interventions can be problematic because they're a little bit top down. Like we know yes. what's good. We know what's good for you. Um, yes. <laughs> I also wonder uh, about your thoughts about the word burnout itself. Um, and if, you know, if you think that's problematic. Um, I think that's a great question. I think it's problematic for a variety of reasons. I think, first of all, people are burned out on hearing the word burnout. I think that they've heard it so much now that they almost start turning off when that conversation happens, which is unfortunate because this is a critical issue that we need to be addressing. I think the other issues with burnout is that it sounds as though it is a very narrowly focused issue as opposed to the one that is so multifaceted. There are so many contributors to burnout. There are gender-based differences. There are probably, although we don't know for sure, but race-based differences. There are so many levels of things that impact burnout that are not encapsulated just with the word burnout. And then I guess my last issue with the word burnout is that it makes it personal. It makes it sound as though it's the physicians or the healthcare professionals' fault that they're burned out. It doesn't reflect the fact that this is a systems-based issue. And as long as people think that this is a personal issue, it's a personal failing, the more they're going to put blame on physicians and other healthcare professionals for being burned out, and the more then they're going to target prevention and intervention efforts like yoga and mindfulness training and resiliency training. And it's not as though those are bad. Those can help you deal with the stress that comes from burnout, but they don't fix the underlying root causes of burnout. It, for me, it's, it's really hard, you know, when I'm feeling, if, if, if I say burned out, um, if I'll say, I don't know if that's the right it's word. So, it's so it, like but, normal in our yeah. language. Yes. Even yeah. though the word right. has problems, we, we use it. And it's, I think it's okay. Right, right exactly. Yeah. But I think to myself, like, I'm really lucky. I worked so hard to get to this point. I think a lot of us feel that way. We are in a job that we worked really hard uh, um, to get to. Think about the step one um, test we had to take, <laughs> to <laughs> residency, and things like that. So obviously- Two fellowships. Two, yeah, two, <laughs> two fellowships. And then, you know, it's rewarding to take care of patients. So there can be also a lot of, as you said, like guilt associated with burnout too, like- right you know, I worked so hard. I have the luxury of doing a job other people would kill to do. And although there are issues with the word burnout, it doesn't mean that we don't use it because as you said, it's what everybody's using. But I think we need to have a much broader discussion of what burnout means. And so not get rid of the word, but make sure everybody understands what we're talking about. And, and I think my uh, biggest concern with uh, with burnout is we get focused on burnout rather than 
focusing on what we really want to accomplish, and that is making sure that people have a real deep sense of satisfaction, connection with their purpose, and, and just, uh, you know, the, the term joy is used sometimes. That, that might be a little squishy for some people, but I, I don't think that we should ever feel uh, guilty about wanting physicians to feel a real sense of, um, of enjoyment, of of satisfaction, of gratification for all of the time and effort that's the that that they've invested in becoming a physician and and um, and serving others. So that's where I worry about burnout is that it, we get sort of distracted on on burnout, and I I worry that if we get people just better than burnout, they're just okay. It's, and that's not where we want to stop. We want really for, for people to feel a sense of growth and offense, a sense of, of, uh, of true, um, you know, satisfaction and gratification in what they're doing. Now, I agree. As we, as we talk about physician well-being or physician wellness, in my mind, that's more than just the fact that you're not burned out. But as you said, it's sort of the next step how are you, are you gratified in your career? Are you physically and emotionally well? And it's a much broader perspective than just that you're not burned out. Yeah, good point. So I guess Tammy and Cliff, you've been thinking a lot about wellness um, over the last several months. Could you define for us, before we get into our case, what, what does wellness mean? What does that look like? So I think wellness, it's its different uh, for everybody. Everybody's going to have a different definition, but I sort of think of it as a state of being where it, it follows along a, a spectrum. And on, on the right side, uh, you have um, a state where you're have high productivity, you have high functioning relationships, uh, you feel as um, Kim and Cliff were saying, um, you feel fulfillment, uh, joy, you feel like your environment supports you to do the best work possible, and you feel like you're able to uh, achieve the things that you want to achieve. Um, and on the left side, it's the opposite of that, where you may feel like you can't cope or you know things are falling apart i think part and parcel with that uh also think about wellness as do you have also uh, a set of uh, healthy coping mechanisms and do you have um, a support network where if you do start to move towards the left side of the spectrum um, those things can be buffers along with other things to help move you back into a, a healthy and functional and joyous place Hey audience, let me remind you about our sponsor today, Grammarly Premium. This is a product that I love because it saves me time and it makes me more confident in the work that I'm doing as an editor of a show that's putting out a lot of content. We have weekly show notes, emails, lots of correspondence going out, and we want it to look good and sound good. And with Grammarly Premium, we get clarity suggestions when our writing is not as clear as we'd want it to be. They help us simplify our words. As Paul's talked about, brevity is not a strong suit of his, but with Grammarly, they help us with that. And with me, I've told you, I don't understand punctuation and Grammarly has me covered there. They also make vocabulary suggestions for your writing to make it sound good. Make sure you're not using the same words over and over again. And Grammarly Premium is going to follow you wherever you go, whether it's your internet browser, your email, or Microsoft Office. So it is really going to make you look good on all the platforms where you live and work. So what are you waiting for? 
cut down on your editing time, and write more confidently with Grammarly Premium. Get 20% off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com slash curb. That's 20% off at Grammarly, G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. Well, Australia, we're going to revisit Dr. Beth Blackwell's struggle with balance and wellness. Do you want to bring us uh, to the case? This is a, a true story from the many divisions of Cashlack Hospital. <laughs> um, many stories have been combined. So it's a little bit of a long case, but I think it'll resonate. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you drag Cashlack's name through the mud? Nothing like this happens at Cashlack. But go on and read the case. It's <laughs> okay. a fake case audience. Cashlack is a magical place. <laughs> Um, Dr. Blackwell, she is a junior faculty and she has a friend, a good friend who's a full-time primary care doctor. And, you know, she loves um, academic medicine, teaching her residents. Um, but oftentimes, more, more than not, she feels like she's spending every day rushing home from one job to another job and taking care of two children. And then on top of that, she's constantly being told that her productivity isn't enough and she's not building enough and actually was recently told that she is now going to be overbooked patients to meet productivity requirements. Um, on on her admin time, she's often volunteering to teach um, residents and, and medical students as well as mentor them on various projects. And particularly those projects have become time consuming and she feels like she needs some protected time. She asks for it. She's told and looked straight into her eyes and says, associate professors get made on nights and weekends. Uh, we don't give out time like that. Uh, to mentor people, to teach. Um, and she kind of feels overlooked because she has a lot of colleagues that do get protected time and do much less than her. And she speaks to her division chief about how kind of overwhelmed she's been feeling lately. And she's told, you know, hey, why don't you consider going part-time if you're having this much trouble balancing? Unfortunately, she can't afford to go part-time because she's still paying off student loans and she has two kids in daycare. So I'm just going to pause there, and I'd love to get um, our experts' thoughts on um, Dr. Blackwell's friend. Well, this sounds like a very common scenario, unfortunately, for women in medicine. Women not only have their day job, but then do at least 70% of the work at home, plus are usually responsible for child care, especially if normal child care options fall through. And so you're trying to work both jobs, but unfortunately, healthcare systems don't always recognize that and don't provide the flexibility for women to be able to take care of their roles outside of work. There are gendered expectations of, of what women's roles are. And until we change those expectations, women are still going to be responsible for work at home. In a study that we, uh, on which I was a senior author that was published recently, showed that women physicians over the age of 60 are still the primary caretaker for somebody. 20% of them are still taking care of someone. So it's not just an issue for younger women physicians, but it's a lifelong issue with women physicians. And women frequently feel that no matter where they are, they're in the wrong place. And that was something that we found in one of our focus groups. One of the women said that her greatest stress was when she was at work, she thought she should be at home. And when she was at home, she thought she should be at work. And that doesn't help. The other issue too, as you mentioned, she's teaching. Women uh, faculty are frequently the ones who are given teaching responsibilities 
but they need that for promotion. But unfortunately, evaluations and things of women typically aren't as good as they are for men, the evaluations from students. So that can negatively impact their promotion. And in terms of needing to produce more RVUs, to see more patients, to produce more widgets, that unfortunately is also an issue that impacts women. Women tend to be somewhat better communicators we are frequently referred patients who are much more complex. They need more time. But then on the other hand, we're then asked to see more patients. So there becomes an issue when we're expected to take care of the hard patients that need more time and yet see more patients. And you can't do both. And so that's where it come, where the flexibility in the system needs to come in to, again, ask physicians, ask the people that are going to abide by the, the policies that are developed in an institution, what they need and what is needed to make their lives easier in practice, accommodating for what they need to do outside of work. When Kim was talking there, uh, I just, it, it, the kind of the thought crossed my mind about the current generation of learners um, I'm sort of at the older end of this millennial generation, and then there's a lot of the millennial generation I'm working with now, and they have the reputation for wanting a lot more flexibility than physicians have had in the past. So I was just wondering, um, Kim, have you noticed that in, in the people that you're working with? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I have. I think that younger generations, always makes me feel old when I say that, <laughs> younger generations are looking more fl- for more flexibility. And I think part of it is because they see the more senior physicians and they see how burned out people are. And I think they think, I don't want that. I want to have something else in my life. I've had all these other activities that I've done in my life. I have had a multitude of interests. Why am I being forced to give that up for my profession? And so I do think they want more flexibility. I can think of a more senior um, orthopedic surgeon who was not in my institution who said one time in a meeting that his vision was that he died in the operating room, which first of all, is not great for patient care, but also this feeling like he was his job. He had no identity outside of his job. And so when his life ended, it need to, needed to be because he was performing his job. I think it's that level of almost maniacal dedication to your work and the sole focus on work that is making older generations burn out. And again, I think the younger generations are saying, this is not what I bought into when I went into medicine, and this is not the life that I want. I would love to have- I think it's great. Yeah, I would love to have the part-time discussion because there was a a New York Times article that we'll link to that got a lot of heat in the last year about how medicine is one of the most flexible um, professions because unlike a lot of other jobs, we, a lot of other jobs, like, you know, being a lawyer, you know, other examples, banking, private equity, I don't know, we can go part-time. Is that a good thing? Is there a lot of nuance that we need to talk about? What are your thoughts on the part-time question? I think it's good in terms of balance. My only concern is who is going part-time? Because as you notice from the article, it was always the women physicians who were either changing the their area of specialty or they went part-time. My issue is then as we look at it, at the problems that women have in career promotion, 
some of that is because they don't have the they don't have the clinical experience that gives them the regional and national reputation they need for promotion. If they're working part time, they may not have time to teach or do the research that's needed for promotion. So I think part time is fine as long as women understand what they're getting into. And again, there's a conversation with the significant other or the spouse that really it needs to be the woman physician who is making things part time. At a female colleague with whom I was trying to develop a research project and we kept trying to have meetings and she kept canceling because there was constantly an issue with either daycare fell through or her child was sick and couldn't go to daycare and I said so are there other options and she said no my husband is an attorney and he can't take time off work. So why is it always the woman who is the one who has to compromise? Now, again, as long as that's her decision, she understands what that means in terms of career promotion, and that's okay, that's fine. But I think that the assumption that the woman physician is the one who's gonna have to sacrifice her career is a little is concerning and especially again in that New York Times article, it was always the woman who was changing changing her career path. Yeah. And I think I just want to bring up one of the comments. I like there was like it was su- it's such a viral and controversial um, article. And one of the comments just struck me. It was from a male physician um, and kind of to Matt's point how it's not just, uh, you know, women uh, in, in this generation, but a lot of men also crave that flexibility um, and, and that, you know, and don't feel guilty for wanting to have that feeling of fulfillment and thriving that Cliff was talking about. But one of the comments, I'll just highlight real quickly, um, this person uh, from Cleveland, he said, my own my only hope for a change is the fact that younger generations of men are increasingly looking for work-life balance and willing to share domestic work with their partners. This and only this will provide true work-life balance to medicine, especially for women. Unfortunately, just another change in human behavior that will be dictated by men's desire, not women's. I just thought it was so, um, again, like, lifting lift like looking at things from a different lens it was like oh yes it's you know one it's really great that we have allyship from men and and um and they also want this too but hopefully this can help us kind of bring bring about that change but also in in some ways a little unfortunate as well and this thought too that now that women represent more than 50% of medical school classes that somehow this is going to change. I think having more women in medical school and thus more women physicians can help increase the volume of what we're talking about and needing more flexibility and changing the healthcare system. But it doesn't magically change just because there are more women in the field. It's really an, an intentional change because of their input. And then as you said, the input from men. Leah and Shrey, I'm reminded, I can't remember if it was Vinny or Reshma uh, that that had mentioned there was a program where in order to keep women in this some sort of research track, there was grants that were given to uh, young women who were researchers and that way they could have the child care provided so that they could keep on, you know, on their projects and would not have this happen to them. So more programs like that. So there are there is some hope that things are being done for this. We just need a lot more of that. Yeah, that's right. That was uh, the Reshma Jagsi um, podcast. And th- I believe that was a Harvard program. So yeah, there are some innovative maybe 
Oh, this was the Claflin Scholars Program um, at Mass General. So grants for women during childbearing and rearing years, years, hoping that they, you know, that there would this be- will hold them over. Yeah, exactly. You know, less dropout, less attrition. Less having to choose one thing versus the other and, and kind mm -hmm. of, yeah. I would just add that um, everybody goes through different life stages. And so it may be that uh, you are hitting one stage where you have a career push and you just step on the accelerator, but then there are maybe other stages where that may not be the case and you may want to step away and, and um, have other parts of your life uh, be more uh, the priority. But I do think that from a systems uh, standpoint, uh, we should also make it easier for uh, women and others to re-engage again, uh, should we want to come back and um, be more focused on the career. I think that just from a business standpoint, uh, that's a lot of uh, wasted potential and human capital. And you think about a physician, how much time, like at least 10 years spent focusing um, on developing a skill set, and then a lot of um, money invested, and you're in your peak years. So um, that's that's all going to waste if, if there aren't opportunities uh, for people to re-engage again. So something Kim said speaks so loudly to me. I, when she said that women she talked to said that no matter where they are, they feel like they're in the wrong place. I was like, oh, this might, this is it. Like, this is exactly how I'm feeling every day at work. And at home, I feel like I should be spending time with the baby at home or at work and spending time working when I'm at home looking at my email. And as a result, I've just been interviewing literally anybody who'll talk to me, every mom physician to say like, how did you make this work? Or if you have young kids, how, what are the actual details of, of your life? How are you actually making this work? And what I realized is that everybody's coming up with these workarounds, like Shreya going part-time, or for me, mm -hmm. I am going to be starting clinic a little late and, and sort of pushing back my clinic schedule so that I can do daycare drop-off, which starts at 8.30. But none of these workarounds are actually codified. They're not like in a handbook or a menu mm -hmm. of choices that <laughs> you can choose because you need them for your life. The other thing that I'm struggling with, it's just like a... God, it's like a vicious cycle is that I am super privileged because I'm actually a full-time ambulatory physician. So I have probably the most flexibility of any doctor, um, any profession, uh, any sort of subspecialty. So yeah, it's really tough. I mean, yeah, I think, I think especially when you compare yourself to like what a neurosurgeon's schedule mm -hmm. is like, it's, it's very easy. And, and also unfortunate, like that so much of our coping, uh, or the way we kind of put things into context for ourselves is like, oh, well, somebody else has it worse than me. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be feeling bad. I shouldn't be asking for things to change, or I should be more grateful because I'm in this situation. And I think maybe that's one of the things that keeps change from, from happening, um, even though like in the day-to-day, -day, we kind of have to tell ourselves that to just survive. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also funny you talking about all these workarounds. It makes me just think about the context that, that we're in. So much of medicine is just a bunch of workarounds glued together. Um, and and so it's just ironic uh, kind of how we are also figuring out workarounds for ourselves too. Um, and I think it's worth giving ourselves some headspace to think about then 
how are these workarounds impacting each of us differently? Totally. Hey, Curbsiders. We're sponsored today by the American College of Physicians. Internal medicine is evolving rapidly to meet the needs of new healthcare and practice challenges. You know this. ACP membership gives you and me the essential tools we need to stay abreast of the latest clinical and practice information. With ACP membership, you can access a wide array of free or deeply discounted resources, stay up to date with ACP's educational tools to earn CME and mock credit, and you can connect with a global community of 161,000 colleagues. I know that I love being an ACP member because they have great resources. There's the Annals of Internal Medicine with its ACP Journal Club, and MixApp. You all know MixApp. I love MixApp. I am such a huge internal medicine nerd that doing MixApp questions is a favorite pastime. And finally, if you're a POCUS nerd or POCUS enthusiast like me, then check out their POCUS resources online. They have great tutorials that you can use to educate yourself or to supplement the teaching that you're doing locally. So what are you waiting for? U.S. post-training physicians can receive a 20% discount on their first-year membership dues. This special deal is only available through December 31st, so visit acponline.org forward slash ACP20 and use the code ACP20. That's a 20% discount for first-year membership dues at acponline.org forward slash ACP20 and use the code ACP20. Um, yeah, I just wanted to get a little bit in just a briefly in terms of at least what we know about um, gender-based differences in, in burnout. Are there any compelling statistics or compelling studies to know about, um, about how kind of some of these systems issues impact women differently? Because um, it affects all of us, as, as Matt and Cliff and everyone was saying, but um, I'd be curious about that and I'd be curious if we, what, what is it that we know just very briefly about maybe even how it affects um, women of color differently? Well, some data would indicate that women are more likely to exhibit burnout. That data, though, you need to look at very carefully because women and men demonstrate burnout differently. Women are more likely to demonstrate emotional exhaustion men are more likely to exhibit burnout through depersonalization. Emotional exhaustion is much easier to pick up than is depersonalization in both ourselves and in others. So the question is, are women really more burned out or is it just easier to pick it up in them? Regardless, even if the prevalence is the same between the genders, there are different risk factors for developing burnout between, between men and women. Uh, some of the issues that you see with, with women are some of the things that they may bring into their profession, but is certainly exacerbated by their training and their profession. Things such as imposter syndrome and stereotype perception, where they don't think that they um, are as good as everyone tells them or as objective evidence would tell them or that they think that everyone else thinks they're not very good. All of those tend to increase the risk of, of developing markers of burnout. The other issue is a systems issue, and that's issues with bias, discrimination, and sexual harassment. The interesting thing is when you look at the impact of sexual harassment on markers of burnout among men, it occurs if they are the primary victim, meaning the harassment happens to them. Among women, it's whether the, it's if they are the primary or the secondary victim. 
the latter meaning they've either heard about a sexually harassing situation or they have observed one. That to me indicates that even if you personally haven't been harassed, if you've heard about someone who has, and as we know, that's frequently from serial harassers, it is an indication that the environment in which you are working is does not hold the same values that you do, do not, does not necessarily value women in medicine, and so can lead to what is, I think, at times the basic issue with burnout, that your values and what you want to do are at cross purposes to those of the organization in which you're working. Also wanted to bring up, I think those are all really important and uh, great points. And then also just wanted to um, bring up the tie between uh, the electronic health record uh, and the differences between men and women. There was a recent study that came out of UCSF Health um, a, a couple of months ago, and they found that um, on a per work relative value unit basis, uh, women spent more time in the EHR um, after hours on clinic days, on non-clinic days, basically just more time. And they spent more time handling messages in their um, inbox. They spent more time doing clinical review. Um, they had longer notes. Um, they had more patient contacts that were returned within 24 hours. They had fewer visits closed on the same day. And so I think in this day and age, we know that um, EHR is a contributor to burnout. And I think it, it's important to note that uh, there are differences perhaps in the way men and women use um, the EHR and interact with the EHR. And so that needs to some more research and to be looked at closer and then to have some strategies to address those differences. I agree. And I think this concept of pajama time where you're finishing up your records at, at home is not necessarily good for a physician's mental health. At some point, you have to be able to unplug. There was an, an older study than the one you just cited that looked specifically at women in rural practice. And the reason they looked at these women is that in a rural community, you're essentially never off the clock because even when you stop seeing patients in the office, you may go to the grocery store and there they are again. But in this practice, the women that found a way with support from people at work as well as, as, well as their families to unplug and dissociate and separate themselves from work when they were at home and home when they were work where it had much lower markers of burnout. And so it is, it's utilizing elect, electronic health records as we need them, but also have a time when you're not at work and you've got to be able to unplug and do everything else it is that you want to do in your life. I wonder if you think those are teachable skills. And you mentioned at the beginning how, you know, how we address burnout, we need to sort of figure out what the problems are and then go after those. So do you think that's a teachable skill? I think it's a teachable skill. The question is, will that get some support from leadership and healthcare organizations? So we can teach people to unplug, but if your responsibilities are mandating that you don't ever unplug, then no matter how well you know how to do it, if you're not permitted to do it, then, that's, then it's not going to have any impact. Amen to that. And then on top of it, healthcare systems value, I think Leah, your, your friend who's a lawyer said this the best, um, they value insecure overachievers. So as long as there's plenty of insecure overachievers around, um, 
the ones who the people who then don't have the bandwidth to overachieve are the ones that are going to get weeded out. Yeah, totally. I think those medical record alerts that I'm deficient are like custom made for my <laughs> insecure overachiever side. Um, yeah. So okay, like next up, we need to talk about some solutions. I'd like to talk for a second about allyship, which is part of why we're so glad that Matt and Cliff are here. But to me, this seems like uh, one of the main takeaways and calls to action is developing allyship. Clearly, um, Matt and Cliff and all of the you know other male allies that we have can be helpful in this arena. But how do we build allyship. I think about this a lot in some amazing women in medicine groups that I'm a part of, including this curbsiders group. But if we're only talking to each other, we're not going to make a lot of changes. So what do you recommend for that? Well, from my perspective, I think it's framing this uh, at, at the root goal that we have, and that is to provide the highest quality, safest care with access, uh, you know, and, and um, really try and um, achieve the greatest health outcomes for individuals and communities. And um, we can't do that unless the entire healthcare workforce is at their peak performance. And so, you know, it, it, to some degree, you have to sort of dissociate it from gender and, and say, you know, what are we trying to accomplish together? And we need everybody to be at their best. And, um, and so, you know, let's, let's find ways to, improve the the cultural aspects the the system aspects that are um, really putting um, a significant portion of the physician workforce at a disadvantage by by not um, achieving that and and so you know that's uh, what I like to focus on again is what we're trying to achieve not so much what the the problem is I guess but the but what we're trying to achieve so I think that's a really uh, important aspect of uh, of that. Yeah, I would agree, and I think the other issue that is that is par- somewhat parallel to that is access to care. We already have a physician shortage. If we don't address the issues that that both male and female physicians are having, they're going to leave medicine. We already have an issue with attrition in medicine, and we're not going to make it up by increasing the number of medical students who are in, currently in school. We have got to work with the physicians who are already in practice to figure out what issues they're facing and how do we address those so that we keep them in practice, we keep them happy and healthy and providing high quality care. One of the comments that was made in the papers that, that you all had sent out was that we need to stop just complaining and physicians need to be developing solutions like because we've... We've been part of how this has happened. We've got to this situation is by letting other people take control and make the decisions. And you have maybe non-physicians making decisions for physicians and not really being able to put themselves in our shoes as frontline, you know, physicians. So um, when you were in the the well program, did you talk about like what kind of leadership changes might be necessary to like to get this moving forward in a positive way? I think an important aspect of this is that um, physicians do need to be uh, leaders in this effort. And um, I think every physician is a leader. They're a leader, whether they think they are or want to be or not, uh, when they're providing care, 
people, other folks on the team are going to look to to physicians as uh, role models and as leaders. And so, you know, I think that we need to embrace that that role as leaders. Um, I, if we are looking for the insurance companies, um, the uh, uh, politicians, the legislators, regulators to um, really address the issues that are the root causes in, in all this, you know, we're not going to make significant improvements. But if physicians take the lead and if physicians are um, coalition builders, um, and, and I think the group that's left out the most in this are um, patient and family advocates, you know, uh, because this really boils down again to the quality of care, patient uh, um, you know, safety, and um, the oh, wait a experience. Sec. Is, that, is that the, the dog? delivery guy <laughs> yeah, is here? Or girl? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wait a second. I can okay. mute her. No, no, you can just you can pick up uh, unless okay. you think the dog's going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we 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 need to really focus on developing a, a coalition um, to uh, address this. And an important part of that coalition, I think, that gets overlooked are, are patient and family advocates, because again, this boils down to um, high quality care, safe care, access to care, and um, you know, I, I think that uh, patient and family advocates understand that um, having a, 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 an optimally functioning physician is really important. And so I think they can be our allies in addressing uh, you know, some of these really stubborn issues. I agree. And it's, it's reaching out to the to leadership in, in healthcare systems and in hospitals to you know, talk about what is it that they're trying to achieve. They all have quality metrics. This patients don't come to a given hospital or healthcare system because of what kind of electronic health record they have or that they've got a robot in the operating room. Those are all tools, but without a happy, healthy, well-functioning physician workforce, those tools are irrelevant. And so it's reinforcing to leadership that if their goal is to, is to increase access to care and provide safe, and quality patient care, then they need to be focusing on burnout. And again, physicians are leaders in this in raising awareness, but also have to be providing input then into what tools and what changes need to be made to then address burnout. We can't just raise the issue among leadership and then rely on them to come up with solutions that may or may not be effective. We have to be part of the decision-making process to let them know what will or will not work. I I love I love this conversation, but I think I'm going to push you guys a little bit because I'm going to be bold and say uh, diffusion of responsibility is something that like I am always very aware of. And I feel like when we're like, yes, physicians need to take charge. Right. But then who who is responsible? Because then it's we're, like nobody takes responsibility. You're like, yes, everybody needs to be responsible and everyone needs to advocate. And yes, well, that's like lovely to say in an ideal world and wish we all had the time and resources. Actually, like, you know, what's one thing that good thing that is happening is around the, the country, there's all these wellness officers popping up. And I think, yes, that's like good step in the right direction. I unfortunately often feel from talking to some of them, they don't have a lot of the resources to really enact a lot of things. Um, I feel I feel like a lot of them still with the budgets and things they have are left to doing mindful training and um, resiliency days and things like that, which is, again, um, you know, is helpful for some people. But again, I think if we're talking about like real system level things, 
who takes responsibility for making the change? And I have a, a slightly strong opinion, but I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on in our institutions, in our hospitals, who should be tasked with this responsibility? Because I think unless someone is tasked with it and held to it, it's just going to be something that people tweet about and not maybe, I mean, I, I believe in Twitter a lot, actually. I, that's a change that can come from Twitter, but, um, but who, who takes responsibility or who should? Well, my, my opinion is that it does need to be physicians. We can't be, uh, we can't adopt a, a victim mentality. We can't uh, be by, bystanders. We've got to uh, point out the uh, the issues in the system. We have to to point out the cultural issues, the practice in, inefficiencies, the system um, uh, regulations that don't make sense. Um, but then, I, I what I worry is uh, about is that um, in our training in medicine as medical students and as residents, we don't get a good basis in health system science in um, uh, improvement science or in influential leadership. And because you've got to, uh, if, if your approach is you're just gonna complain and not offer solutions or be willing to, um, to try and be part of the, the, the work to make improvements, then um, you get tuned out. And so, uh, but I don't, I don't think that in general, physicians have gotten that foundation of uh, those sort of um, change leadership uh, tools and techniques like we need to be able to, to, uh, yeah. to utilize to make people, those changes. There's so many people that are also operating in, in like a culture of fear, right? They're like, well, if I start to talk about this, will they see me as someone who's, you know, not grateful or, um, you know, that I'm, maybe I could lose my job if I'm trying to do all this stuff. And, or more subtle, or, you know, perhaps you won't um, get put up for an opportunity because you want, you're speaking out against you're some speaking of the out, issues. Or, yeah. or you're leading by example and you're trying to leave on time to pick up your kids, you know, and people in, in subtle ways think that you don't have time for something else. Awesome. So with that, like, we'd love to hear some, some takeaways, um, some call to actions, leave people inspired. I guess my comment, again, would be that burnout is not a personal failing. This is a systemic issue. It's an issue where there is a difference between the needs and, and values of the physician and the, and the institution in which they're working. But when we're designing solutions, they need to be flexible, understanding that that everyone needs something different, especially based on gender. And so if you are going to uh, adopt some new policies or new programs within your institution, first of all, ask, ask your physicians to make sure things are going to work, but understand that there are things that are different for women, that gendered expectations are career long and they don't end when your children start school and so expand from any sort of uh, maternity leave to actually a like, career long family leave look at mentoring programs for women uh, we know women have a much harder time finding mentors whether male or female but if they have a mentor they're less likely to get burned out whether it's because they feel they have support maybe they're less lonely because they have someone to talk to or maybe it's because the mentor can pick up burn 
burnout earlier. It is developing um, a system or a cultural change within the institution so that women physicians are respected, their work is respected, and we get rid of the issues with bias, discrimination, and harassment that have such a significant impact on burnout. So there are a lot of things that we can do, a lot of concrete actions that we can take, but it's going to take all of us working together to make sure that these are going to be effective. All right. So to close out, Lee, I think it might be good to just reflect a little bit on how COVID showed us just how nimble we can be, all the way from people like overnight creating new hospital unit structures to new working models of people working from home. I hope, I hope we can really harness that momentum to create some disruptive changes, um, whether it's, it's, you know, different work models that work for people in different situations. But I think with all that, though, even though COVID showed us how nimble we can be, I actually worry that people who are in positions to make change might just be too burnt out to think about, okay, maybe next academic year, how can we reallocate money or what could childcare benefits look like with HR and kind of have those thoughtful discussions about change. Yeah, me too, Shreya. Um, Rashma Jagsi, one of my favorite, all-time favorite uh podcast guests on the Curbsiders wrote a piece about harnessing disruptive change from the pandemic to benefit women in medicine and hopefully lead to more equity. I think we need to codify some of these workarounds. Um, and personally, I think this is like a four alarm fire for the for healthcare. Women make up over 50% of medical school graduates. And if almost half of us have to go part-time or leave medicine, in order to make our lives function on a day-to-day basis. This is just clearly not a women's issue. This is an issue for all of us. Absolutely. Yeah. I hope I hope 10 years from now when we are recording a women in medicine <laughs> episode, yes. uh, things will be better and we will kind of continue to use this momentum to have some honest conversations and, and think about some, some changes. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Absolutely. And with that, uh, this has been another episode of the Curbsiders Women in Medicine Edition, bringing you a little knowledge food for that brain hole. Mm. (laughs) This was a a very tasty one. Uh, We are emerging from new baby haze, as we had talked about. So we really want your feedback. What do you guys want to hear next? Uh, We know uh, a majority of this episode has focused on motherhood and medicine. That's just where our headspaces are at right now, um, where we're seeing inequity the most. But we'd love to hear from you guys what we, the next discussion should be about. As always, you can get our show notes at thecurbsiders.com uh, backslash podcast. Sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com backslash knowledge food to get the weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to bringing you high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we really need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Madison Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganoff on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Leah Witt. And I've been Shreya Trevetti. And uh, this is Matt Watto signing off <laughs> in, in uh, guest spirits. Thank you and have a good night. Good night.